this is just a little Spark and Ninja podcast where I wanted to talk about a scenario that I had a couple of weeks ago. I was doing some inspection and testing. It was an electrical installation condition report and a fairly prestigious race course. And I go back on the tools now and then because it's important to keep yourself, you know, aware of how things go. Uh, thankfully, though, this was a suitable arrangement for me in that I was paid day rate doing EISCR's day rate. That must be a dream for most people these days. The benefit of this was it allowed me to diversify and actually adjust my work to actually, you know, investigate further to, you know, sample things here and there. But it worked a lot for the client. The client, the installation itself is about, oh, I don't know, it's, it must be 15 or so years old now. And it's had a number of EICRs carried out. Um, and, you know, the client knows they've not had a great service. And, you know, this is why we're doing it a lot slower at a day rate. But they, they're getting what they need. And here's the point. If we approach an EICR as an agenda to take a piece of paper with loads of boxes for test results and we choose to go off and collect those test results whilst we're technically giving the client a um, a document of maintenance or a traceable history what we're actually doing is we're running around collecting numbers to put in bloody boxes instead of actually doing the more important part of the work which is the actual inspection taking the time to actually inspect the installation uh, and this is how we end up with people that can be clever with the calculations and they can be clever with their understanding of electrical systems and their cable sizes lengths. So they can start to actually create fictional documents and inaccurate data. So going back to this example that I had, however, when it comes to inspection and testing for me, bear in mind, I also deliver the 2391, etc. And I delivered, of course, with, uh, with my father, who will be on a podcast soon. And it's always good when we get together because we start to just talk about the work practically but we also then challenge the training we challenge the books we challenge guidance notes three for example we challenge the way the industry does the work and we always look at how things could be improved how things could be bettered or how even the document could be better and case in point is this one example and when we carried out the inspection testing on a circuit it was in a it was in a bar area it was a radial circuit on a 4mm and it was on a C32 RCBO. So just uh, just just in case you're unfamiliar with the the um, the ratios here, a C32 would require 10 times the current for instantaneous disconnection. So 320 amp. So we carried out earthful loop impedance tests as you do. And in that scenario, if your value was actually, you know, too high, you have that um, that bad attitude of allowing for the RCBO components to take over and to get away with it. But here's what we also do. The test instrument that we have, we were using, what were we using? Um, I'm using a Mega. 1741 but we also had the uh the new K uh, qtech kt63 plus which was a uh, you know quite a nice pretty toy these testers have a function for live to live or live to neutral testing 
and it will give you a loop test, but it gives you the current. It's the setting that you would do the prospective short circuit current test at. And that's what this test is. But instead of actually measuring that at the supply, which is where we typically remember, or we typically are trained to do that test, we actually test it at the socket. So when I go to do a socket test, do a ZS test, I'll also switch the leads over or switch the setting over to do a line to neutral test, like a line to neutral impedance test. But I'm getting current. This is what I'm trying to verify here. Why am I doing this? Well, as I just said, a line to an earth loop impedance line to earth, you know, you could get away with that if you had an RCBO allowing for that higher value of 1667 ohms due to the 30 milliamp rated current. That is not going to do anything on a short circuit scenario. So it's very important still to verify short circuit current at the end of the final circuit. Why the end of the final circuit? Because the end of the final circuit is where the impedance of the fault current is highest and where the impedance of the fault current is highest, therefore the current value is lowest. Why is that a problem? Well, we must make sure there is sufficient current to achieve instantaneous disconnection. We've just mentioned the C32 requires 320 amps for 0.1 to 5 second instantaneous disconnection. So we got a measurement of 198 amps, which is obviously too low. So the impedance here is too high. The earthfall loop impedance was fine because it was a wiring system with still conduits, etc. in the environment. The parallels helped with that. It doesn't help with a short circuit. So we did that test. And the reason we've done that test is it's in our nature during inspection and testing. Yes, there's nowhere to put that test result on your scheduler test results. There's no, if you look at them, there's a ZS column, but there isn't a... Uh, a ZLN or a short circuit current column for the end of the final circuits. However, I also cover training and do installation work in BS7909. And if any of you guys are familiar with BS7909, which is the code of practice for temporary electrical installations for the event industry, you'll know then that there is a line to neutral short circuit column. Okay. In that industry, the lines of neutral short circuit must be verified. And this is because of the impact of length. Long lengths of run means high impedance, low full currents. So because we know this, we verify this even in fixed electrical installations. And that's what I've done here. So what does this actually mean, however? What does this mean? Well, knowing that I now have 198 amps, which is the amount of current that would occur in a short circuit at the end of the final circuit, I can then say, right, how long would it take 198 amps to actually turn off that device? So I go to Appendix 3 to the time curve characteristics, and I know that 320 amp is required for 0.1 to 5, so obviously 200 is going to be a longer disconnection. And then what I'd have to do is then have to verify if that duration of time that the circuit takes to disconnect is actually quick enough before the cable's insulation is damaged due to this short circuit current. So I'm going to grab the book now and just read out these numbers. Right, okay, the book's here. So this is a Type-C device, 60898 RCBO61009. So we are looking on page 371 of the 18th edition to 2018. 
and I'm going to be looking at the 32 amp curve because that's the device I've got and I want to find out where 200 amp is. I'm going to go with 200 amp because I've got 198 amps, so that's close enough for the line. So I find the 100. I then want to find the 200 amp vertical line, which is hiding behind that blue box. I'm going to find that 200 amp vertical line, and I'm going to go up until it comes across the 32 amp. It goes across the 32 amp there, and that is a time of... I go across to the left. Okay, nine seconds. Okay, so this current, this is a lower current. So instantaneous disconnection to the requirements of part four, protection against electric shock, isn't achievable here. So this is, again, this is gonna be a potential C2 observation. Okay, unless there's other reasons why this kind of fault won't occur. This was just a socket out to use for cleaners i think it was actually called a cleaner circuit so there was no other reasons to consider this so this would be escalated to a c2 at the moment so i've got nine seconds so i've got a i've got a fault i've got enough current for nine seconds now what okay is there any further potential danger here well yes there is so this is a fault current so if i go in bs7601 to protection against fault current which is chapter 43 there is a little section with that little formula the t is equal to k squared s squared over i squared formula which we can find on page 92. the circuit that is actually used here I believe um, it's FP, so I'm going to assume it's 90 degree thermo setting. So a 90 degree thermo setting cable, um, copper gives me 143k factor. I've got a formula then, which is T is equal to K squared, so K is 143 times S squared. These were formula line conductors divided by I squared, and here the current again. Is going to be 198 so to speak so grab my calculator and we're going to go t is equal to k squared 143 squared times 4 squared equals this divided by i squared which is 198 squared equals 8.345679 so 8.3 Okay, so what if we just calculated? Okay, before we interpret this, let's remember that the current here, 198 amps, yeah, when it was 200 amps, which is a couple of amps more, it achieved nine second disconnection. So if anything, this is slightly over nine seconds. We've just calculated, however, 8.3 seconds. And this calculation is actually the duration of time that it's going to potentially take for the conductors under operating temperature to reach their final limiting temperature which goes up to in the case of 90 degree thermo setting from 90 degree under load up to a final temperature of 250 degrees so this is required for protection against fault current now Bearing in mind that the cables may not be under load at these points of fault or under sufficient load that they're at these temperatures, you can adjust these. But without further information, when we're doing a condition report, all we can do is go with BS7671. And BS7671 tells me that for the C32, I require 320 amp for instantaneous disconnection. 
which I haven't achieved here. And it also tells me the current I have got here will actually potentially damage the insulating material of the conductors, which will create a potential fire prior to the time the actual disconnection of the overcurrent protector device will actually take effect and remember this has got nothing to do with the rcds because this is all about short circuit conditions this is just another little example about the importance of inspection and testing and understanding all of the tests available and what the actual theory of those tests are we don't want to actually end up becoming robots that just press buttons, take numbers and put them on a piece of paper. Make sure we understand how BS7671 is modeled to actually achieve protection. And the point of inspection and testing is to carry out those inspections and if necessary, those tests to verify that the installation is suitable as BS7671 intends it to be. Right. I'm going to use this example in a future podcast with the E5 guys when we're going to start talking about working from the books, trying to actually work to a higher standard than the way these books are set because there are many areas of these books where we could actually be a little bit better than where they're setting. So look out for that. That'll be over on E5 podcast very, very soon. But I'll leave this one here. This is just a little example that I had a few weeks ago. And these things are great because it, this happened two days before I went on to help with a 2391. And it's great to have this kind of experience because when you do the training, you can then actually kind of stimulate the learners to think bigger than what the testing requirements stated are. All right. hope that's been helpful. hope that's been interesting. Um, by all means, you know, if you contact me if you have any further questions on this, but this is all about considering tests that you don't write answers down, but you should really still study. It does say in the regulations that we do need to achieve the necessary circuit impedances to achieve the protective requirements needed. That is a simple requirement back in part one. Yeah. So do make sure we understand what we need to do here, guys. All right. I'm going to finish this one and I'll see you soon.